Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy! Welcome to another episode of The Fellow on Call, the Hemong Podcast. We're coming at you from Rulo University Medical Center. I'm Ronak. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. And guys, I am so excited for today's episode. We get to do the first of our interview episodes with Dr. Jack West from City of Hope. Oh my gosh, what a wealth of knowledge. And I think the coolest part for me was after several weeks, many weeks of lung cancer episodes, I feel like I actually understood what he was talking about, which felt amazing. Yeah, this is a wonderful episode. If you guys have been here for the whole journey of this series, then this is really going to make everything put it into a lot of context from a medical oncology standpoint. If you haven't checked out the earlier episodes or get confused, check it out. Remember, this is an asynchronous learning platform, so check it out. But this interview is excellent. You know, I think uh, as excited as I am to be one episode closer to, to Benign Heme, I think I'm actually more excited for our discussion with Dr. West today. So uh, let's get going. All right, listeners. Well, we're so excited to be joined today by Dr. Jack West, who is an associate professor in the Department of Medical Oncology and Therapeutics Research at City of Hope Comprehensive Cancer Center in California, who is also happens to be a thoracic cancer expert. And so we're so, so, so happy that he's here to talk to us to kind of round out this this several week long discussion we've been having about lung cancer. Dr. West, welcome to our show. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Dr. West, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and you know what you do, uh, how you got interested in, in, in lung cancer? And we always like to ask our guests a fun fact about themselves as well. Well, I am a thoracic oncologist. Um, I, trained, uh, I, I trained in Boston, went to Harvard Med School and then uh, to Brigham and Women's for uh, fellowship then but I've been in Seattle ever since then for a fellowship at the University of Washington Fred Hutch program. And it was there that I focused on lung cancer uh, and have been in it now for over 20 years. And in that time, it's been a wild ride. It's been a real change because I I went into lung cancer initially because, you know, I just wanted to be in a field where there was a clear need and where uh, it was a common cancer. And honestly, I was okay with helping people who weren't always going to have good outcomes. I think that many of my colleagues in medical training didn't have an easy time doing oncology or certainly lung cancer because the outcomes were so challenging. Uh, Not that I relish that, but just we all want to work somewhere where there's really a need that you can fill. And so being able to cure who you could, but for those who you couldn't do the best you could to extend their life and sometimes just focus on having them have as few symptoms as possible and feel as well as they can for as long as they can. That was okay with me. And I really felt that someone needed to do that. So I've been focused in lung cancer for more than a couple of decades. And in that time, it has really changed from 
you know, when people would ask, why'd you go into it? Like I had lost a bet or something. And, uh, or when I was in early in fellowship, we, one of the first journal clubs we had in my fellowship was on a recent article showing the very marginal improvement in survival with old school cisplatin-based chemo and metastatic disease and kind of asking the question of, is it worth treating metastatic lung cancer for two months or less of a survival benefit? And you'd have to give cisplatin-based chemo where the treatment could be worse than the disease. Um, We got somewhat better chemo regimens, but, um, and, and that, made it a little more effective and a little less toxic. But of course, in the last 10 to 15 years, we've really had a a, a series of quantum leaps of uh, driver mutations being identified and targeted therapies that have delivered years of benefit for your average, you know, for your patient who for whom we find this. And there's more and more targets, more and more targeted therapies, and of course, immunotherapy as well. And so at this point, uh, lung cancer has become kind of a poster child for dynamic uh, oncology, molecular oncology, where it can be hard to keep up with all the advances, which is an enormous change from, uh, you know, when I started, you could maybe not pick up JCO for five years and would still be doing just fine and wouldn't have missed much. So that's crazy. To, to us, you know what I mean? Because it's like it's like nowadays. <laughs> yeah. There's so much in lung that's just always coming out. Exactly, but it, it it's a it's an enormous change. I I wouldn't say that I'm the driver of that, but you know it's been it's been great to be part of it. In terms of a fun fact, I'll just say that while I work uh, uh, at uh, City of Hope, I have a clinic there. Uh, but a lot of what I do is telemedicine, and I, I lead um, one of the clinical leads for what's called Access Hope, which is a remote consult service at uh, City of Hope that reviews records and offers expert uh, insights, not just from City of Hope docs, but from a network that includes a few other centers of uh, of, of excellence. And... Uh, and and this is for people wherever they live so that they with an intent that they can get their care close to home but you can give a sub specialist input and insight uh that that can help shape that care so but because of that i work largely from home do a lot of telemedicine and i actually split my time between seattle and uh, los angeles which is a, a good gig yeah, it's not too bad. Not too bad to hang out in sunny LA every once in a while, and then. <laughs> but but at this time of year, it's a little toasty. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. It's like it's like it's like the Florida beach house <laughs> concept, I guess. Just LA to LA to Seattle on the West Coast. <laughs> nice work if you can get it. So it's, I'm happy for that. That's fantastic. Well, you know, Doctor West, what you know, over the last few weeks, as I mentioned, we've kind of been talking about the ins and outs of lung cancer. So we we talked about it from the lens of. Um, adjuvant treatment. We talked about neoadjuvant treatment. We talked about metastatic cancer. We've had um, guests joining us, uh, including a thoracic surgeon from um, that joined us a few weeks ago to talk about more of the surgical aspects. We've had radiation oncologists on the show, and really just trying to get a full, comprehensive understanding of of lung cancer in and out. And so, what we're really hoping to do today is solidify some of these concepts talking to you about things we've already discussed and also go into some more of the nuanced discussions that we can't just look up in NCCN, for instance. So 
Um, if it's okay with you, I wanted to kick us off with a case, um, and then maybe we can use this case as some as a as a talking point for our first several questions. Is that okay? Sure. Bye. Okay, perfect. All right. So our first case is a 55-year-old male smoker who presented to his primary care doctor with a 20-pound weight loss. He had a CT of his chest, abdomen, and pelvis that showed a 4.2-centimeter right middle lobe mass. On further staging with PET-CT and a brain MRI, he had no evidence of other disease. He had an EBUS that showed negative mediastinal staging, and a biopsy of the mass was consistent with lung squamous cell carcinoma. The patient underwent a lobectomy and achieved an R0 resection, and was found to also have intrapulmonary lymph node in- was found to have intrapulmonary lymph node involvement. So, you know, the f- the first question that um, I have for you is is talking about some of the um, the the additional testing that we do. So, so listeners, you'll remember we previously discussed that in that adjuvant cisplatin doublet that chemotherapy is used for tumors that are more than four centimeters or if there's nodal involvement. Um, and so, Dr. West, given the PDL one status and EGFR status, and the fact that they can potentially change adjuvant therapy choices. How do you employ these tests in your practice? I would say that uh, if a patient has a level of risk of recurrence that is sufficient to warrant treatment, then I think it is very appropriate and, and necessary to do both PDL1 testing and at least EGFR mutation testing because that has a proven role and I think what's a little more debatable is uh, whether there should be a broad, comprehensive NGS-based testing. I would say that while some of my colleagues, and I think at many uh, academic centers in particular, there's an approach of you should do broad molecular testing on every cancer all the time forever, I, I think it's important to consider that we may need to be judicious about societal resources. And there is still this this premise in in medicine that I think many of us learned along the way, maybe in med school or in our internship, of don't do a test if it's not going to change the outcome. And so I would say that if someone has a 1.6 centimeter nodule that's resected, I don't think that it's that valuable to do molecular testing here. If you find an EGFR mutation or an ALK rearrangement, that may lead you to talk with the patient and and just decide that, well, maybe it would be a good idea to do, you know, years of adjuvant, uh, of adjuvant targeted therapy. You know, we have data with the ADORA trial that it, you can improve uh, disease-free survival for higher-risk patients uh, who have an EGFR mutation. But that study did not include patients with with smaller node-negative cancers uh, who have a lower risk. And uh, besides that, we don't yet have evidence that we improve survival with this. It's something that we can at least defer relapses, but patients may end up doing just as well in terms of survival at the time of relapse, if they get that therapy, we don't know yet. And uh, 
So I think we need to be cautious and somewhat judicious about not doing tests in patients who don't need them. But if somebody has at least stage two disease, as this patient does, or stage three A disease, which is really quite high risk for relapse, I would be inclined to definitely do PDL1 testing, where in the adjuvant setting, the Empower 010 trial uh, shows that you can get a meaningful benefit, uh, at least in terms of disease-free survival, for uh, patients with stage 2 and 3A disease who are pdl one positive. But that is mostly driven by high pdl one So I would have a very different view of somebody who has a pdl one of 50 or 80 or 90 percent than somebody whose pdl one is is 4 percent. And uh, I would not be inclined to recommend uh, atezolizumab or or any other immunotherapy for for a patient with low pdl1 in the postoperative setting if a patient had molecular testing uh specifically egfr and a stage 2 or 3a cancer i would still be inclined to uh at least talk with them and probably recommend osimertinib in the adjuvant setting at least while we don't know the overall survival and the disease-free survival is tremendously better. I think we always in medicine have to operate with uncertainties and you do the best you can and anticipate what are the consequences of being wrong in one direction or another. So um, I would also say that you wouldn't be wrong just testing for EGFR, but I think it's very reasonable for a patient with higher risk disease to test for ALK, and ROS1 and various other things essentially do the NGS panel because most of those other uh, driver mutations, uh, those patients are not particularly responsive to immunotherapy. And if I found someone had an ALK rearrangement or ROS1, I would not be enthusiastic about adjuvant immunotherapy. I don't think I would rush to give them targeted therapy where we don't have any data on that yet, but uh, but it's relevant information to understand its biology. That's a great point. Yeah, yeah. And and a couple of interesting things that, that um, you just said there that came to my mind. So for we, we had talked about the Adora trial, and one of the things that we talked about in a, in a previous episode was that there, there are some people that say, well, not everybody got adjuvant chemotherapy in that trial. And, you know, some of the patients didn't get you know, any adjuvant chemotherapy and they just got, it was osimertinib essentially against nothing. How do you reconcile that? You know, we did talk about the very impressive disease-free survival and CNS uh, disease-free survival as well. In your mind, is it just that because those numbers are so good that this is a therapy that would work and that in general, in your practice, do you see that many patients still, if you gave them traditional adjuvant cisplatin-based chemotherapy, that they can't complete the whole chemotherapy? So, or how do you think about this? I would say that it is a disappointment and a concern to me that the trial didn't mandate uh, adjuvant chemotherapy in the way that the Empower 010 trial did. You needed to have at least tried adjuvant chemotherapy. You didn't have to complete four cycles, but you had to have at least embarked on that, and then you could be randomized to placebo or atezolizumab. The the Adora trial and some others don't are, are not that committed to it. And we know that in different parts of the world, uh, 
there's very little commitment to adjuvant chemotherapy, even though it has a survival benefit. It is old school. It's last year's model. It's not sexy, but it's delivered an approximately 5% survival benefit, you know, 5 to 8%. Higher risk disease is associated with higher incremental benefit. So it's no slouch. I mean, it, it may not be astonishing, but it's up to three months. We are happy to give, you know, three or four cycles of every three weeks. And that benefit is sustained for years. And uh, that's more than we can say about osimertinib that costs $200,000 a year. Uh, and as impressive as the DFS benefit is, we have yet to see an overall survival benefit. We did at ESMO, uh, just in the last few days, see an update two years after the initial presentation. Now everyone has completed their three years of therapy. And what you see is a pattern where there's an immediate and ongoing drop-off in the disease-free survival as soon as you stop treatment. And that's been a long-time fear or concern of mine that this is you know, just making the scans look better for as long as you're on it. Maybe that is good enough. Uh, first of all, just postponing disease for three years is something for sure. Uh, maybe it would have even more sustained benefits if people are on it for four or five years or indefinitely, but it does change the equation or the premise of what we're doing because the idea of adjuvant therapy as a concept is eradicate the last stray microscopic, you know, cancer cells and make a difference in the cure rate. And if what we're doing is just postponing the disease relapse for 200,000 or 250 a year, that's a different value proposition versus potentially doing the same survival, getting the same survival and just treating the patients who actually have disease that relapses. Because another problem with adjuvant, especially if it's indefinite and for that cost with some side effects, even though it's not terrible, is that you're treating people who may already be cured and are now on this without an endpoint. So I think that's a real uh, concern here. I would say, getting back to your initial question, that it is unfortunate that I think one side effect of Adora is that people will see osimertinib as an alternative to chemo, that they're now exonerated to not give it. And I think that's a mistake uh, because uh, actually in one of the older trials called JBR10, uh, which was with cisplatin and vinarelbine, a uh, Canadian-led study, they looked at patients with EGFR mutations who got chemo or didn't and saw that the patients with EGFR mutations got every bit of the benefit from chemo that everyone else got and actually more. So the patients who have an EGFR mutation uh, really should not be withheld from getting, you know, they should not be directed away from chemotherapy. It is something that I think oncologists need to coach patients for. No patient, especially after undergoing surgery, is eager to sign up for chemotherapy. So it's incumbent on us to highlight what works. And uh, but I think it's it's a shortcut to to skip that step of the the treatment with a proven overall survival benefit in favor of one that doesn't have it. Yeah, that that I think is fascinating. The uh, asthma results that you just described, because I, di I didn't know about these, that there is an idea that when you stop it, some of these patients' disease is now coming back. And it reminds me a lot of, 
imatinib and CML and things like that, where we have this idea of a treatment-free remission. And, and I mean, it's the same concept that we have this driver mutation. So it's, it's very interesting to me that that's the case. And also really clarified a lot for me that, you know, these patients with EGFR mutations, the exon 19 and L858R that we can give osimertinib, but we should also give adjuvant chemotherapy to these patients in many cases, and that we should counsel patients on that, you know, we don't have the exact right answer, but it's not that we can just substitute chemotherapy for osimertinib, especially if they're a patient who's fit enough to get adjuvant chemotherapy and that 5% difference that we highlighted so many times in previous episodes, and listeners definitely check those out. We talk about the laced pooled analysis as, as one of the landmark studies in that. So let's change the case a little bit and say the patient had a, a 4.2 centimeter right middle lobe squamous cell, um, and, but this time the uh, endobronchial ultrasound showed a station 4R and a station 7 lymph node, uh, so consistent with N2 disease. We've talked about the idea of no surgery up front in cases of N2 disease and the use of induction regimens versus definitive chemo- concurrent chemoradiation. Um, so we wanted to hear, what are your thoughts on the Checkmate 8, 816 trial uh, with the use of neoadjuvant and volumab in addition to the platinum doublet? Uh, do you think that a PATH-CR uh, was an appropriate surrogate endpoint for the trial? And, and kind of how would you apply this to your practice? I, I think that... Um the concept of a pathologic CR or a major pathologic response, which is you know 10% or less viable cancer, these are you know newer endpoints, and uh, it is appropriate to ask whether a surrogate endpoint is sufficient to change practice. I would say though that while I tend to be relatively curmudgeonly about you know using older established endpoints, hard endpoints like overall survival, I I do think that it is appropriate to acknowledge that there is a latency, a real time point difference between when you have early signals that something is likely true and when you have uh, a phase three trial with overall survival as your endpoint to show that. And if you wait for the absolute proof, there are plenty of patients who will potentially get suboptimal treatment because you're waiting for certainty. And I'll also say that what is the concept of statistical significance? It's 5% probability or less than 5% probability by chance. So even if you get a positive result, that doesn't mean it's ironclad, irrefutable that that uh, that's true. It's just you reach a certain level uh, of of probability that you accept that. In in this kind of setting, I would say most of us, myself included, looked at the results from, say, the Pacific trial, a different setting, but consolidation, dervalumab immunotherapy after chemo and radiation, uh, and saw a not just an improvement in uh, progression-free survival, but a staggering improvement and uh, in that before we had overall survival data and we had time before death or distant metastasis as another proxy. And so based on both the magnitude of the benefit seen and the uh and the probability that that would translate to something later. Most of the people who 
you know, relapse with stage three disease, it's not an incredibly long time till you have overall survival uh, uh, results. It, it correlates well. So in that setting, uh, we were uh, comfortable changing the standard of care. The FDA changed and approved Durvalumab in early 2018 based on the 2017 presentation of Durvalumab's PFS benefit. We changed the standard of care. And then in late 2018, we had overall survival. The Adora trial is one where I would love to have overall survival, but while we don't have that, and we have an astonishing improvement in disease-free survival, I think we have to give patients the benefit of the doubt. Uh, I think that that situation is a little artificial because while patients are on uh, are on osimertinib, you're kind of cheating. I mean, I think having the endpoint of of, of uh, uh, progression-free sur- or disease-free survival while patients are on ongoing osimertinib is practically like having an endpoint of blood levels of osimertinib versus placebo. I mean, <laughs> it was such an obvious <laughs> gimme that it's not a real achievement. It was it was a you know an engineered outcome, I would say. So I'm pretty upset and cynical that we had something that was. It wasn't the same as testing two years after stopping the treatment and seeing what the results were. Uh, But getting back to where we were talking, Checkmate 816, uh, path CR rates are tenfold or more than tenfold higher with the addition of nivolumab to chemotherapy. And we also have data subsequently that we've seen that show that, that path CR rates correlate well with uh, with disease-free uh, survival, uh, so uh, our progression-free survival, technically, because the endpoint starts before you've gotten rid of the disease. So, uh, in these situations, although I would love to have more mature data, and and we will, I think again we need to operate with you know what we know at the time, and recognize that there's consequences to being puritanical about this. That uh, that you can leave patients dying waiting for for you to be as certain as you can be, and so we just need to be tolerant of that. And I think this acknowledges that people, sensible people, may have different thresholds for what they accept. And uh, in this case. I'm quite impressed by Checkmate 816. I'll also say that I find that the preoperative platform is very attractive to me because unlike doing a year of postoperative therapy, you consolidate all of this, the chemo and the immunotherapy into three treatments over two months. Uh, They get through it uh, and it's with relatively limited time much less expense. It seems to confer comparable benefits. Thus far, not an obvious huge difference by PDL1 status, but especially important is the, the fact, and I think this is not talked about enough, you actually deliver neoadjuvant therapy to the vast majority of people as intended. Whereas postoperative, a huge number of people won't come to see an oncologist after surgery. They have complications or they don't feel as good. Um, and the concept of whatever poison we might 
might be recommending is not welcome after you're recovering from a thoracotomy, especially, but even from a minimally invasive surgery and losing, you know, a lobe. Uh, so there have been studies that, um, uh, like Natch is one that uh, was by Philippe and colleagues in JCO around 2012 or 13 that just looked at giving carbopaclitaxel preoperatively versus postoperatively versus neither and just surgery. And preoperatively and postoperatively gave about the same results, but slightly better results for preop and over 90% of people got the treatment as intended preoperatively, but only 61% got anything close to that postoperatively. And these were all in a trial as, you know, as, as prescribed. So uh, I, I think that the, there's a huge difference of actually delivering intended treatment preoperatively versus crossing your fingers, but having a barely 50-50 chance of delivering it postoperatively. It's, it's such a good point. You know, like the, the treatment you give is the one that's most likely to be effective. Right. Um, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, well, what's the best camera? The camera you have. You know? <laughs> yeah. and, and so perhaps perhaps my next question may be antiquated in the near future. But, you know, I was right now, at least up until this data came out, we were still doing in some cases some induction treatment with chemo radiation versus chemotherapy alone. I was curious to hear what your kind of take on this is. I, we've heard differences of opinion in terms of what people do or used to do in the neoadjuvant setting. Well, there have not been very good studies of chemo versus chemo radiation. So there's a lot of room for judgment in this. But I would say that the the trend has been away from chemo radiation in most settings. There may be Unique cases, I mean, patients with pancos tumors where uh, chemo radiation is more established prior to surgery, but there was an ASCO presentation that looked at basically a meta-analysis of preoperative chemo versus chemo radiation and did not show an improvement in overall survival uh, with addition of radiation. And I think that and the lack of any compelling data in any individual study to, to show this, it's tough to actually do that kind of study because patients and or physicians have their own biases about it too. Um, but when you combine that with Checkmate 816 and the trend, I, I just would say that we're moving past this functionally. I think that, uh, you know, we've been kind of mulling over this question for a couple of decades and we don't have any data at this point that chemo radiation improves clinical outcomes it may make your pathology look better but to me adding radiation is kind of by brute force it's not really the same as an indicator of what may be happening more globally in terms of the risk of of distant relapse and so i'm disinclined toward it. I don't think it's inane. I, I think there's still room for judgment, but I've lost enthusiasm for that. And I have more enthusiasm for the Checkmate 816 type platform. I think that's what's gaining momentum for now in the future. Yeah, I, th I think that's awesome. And and what I, what I want our listeners to, to know here is that we have somebody who really knows thoracic oncology, then you had our explanations and it's so much more elegant here. We're actually having a lot more, uh, uh, quote, quotes of, of different 
of different trials. We did include these same numbers, and now you're hearing it from somebody who really knows the data well. Um, the, one of the things I did want to highlight out of this is, is one of the key principles we talked about with the patients with these higher-risk disease with their N2, those single-digit lymph nodes and the mediastinum. They have high-risk for systemic disease involvement, and you make you want to make sure that they get something. And it makes so much sense to me that if we have this immune therapy plus chemotherapy option, the immune therapy is helping because it's also systemic, whereas the radiation is more for local control. And this kind of highlights, at least what I got out of that discussion, is it highlights the importance of of the systemic control of disease when we're talking about these tumors that, you know, have have high risk of relapse and recurrence and poor overall survival. So, you know, I, I know that some attendings where, where we're at are saying that, hey, you know, if they have N2 disease, maybe employing this chemo plus Nevo strategy is, is the way to go, which, which makes a lot of sense to me. I think that um, one ongoing question with Checkmate 816 is whether it should redefine what we consider resectable. Because I think, yes, I, I, I am not somebody who thinks that N2 disease categorically means not surgical. Uh, but I think it doesn't help patients to shoehorn patients into the OR who have very bulky multi-station mediastinal disease or contralateral N2 disease. I mean, the patients who were included on this trial were not those who had contralateral mediastinal disease or bulky disease. And I think that that trying to redefine what is surgical aspirationally is is a mistake. The worst thing that can happen is patients undergo a surgery that is does not resect all disease. That's really not doing them a favor at all. It just makes them uh, now uh, an incredibly high, almost you know, almost complete risk of of progression. Uh, and now they're much less equipped to tolerate the therapy that they actually need. Wow. That was awesome. Guys, how are you feeling? I feel like I need a burrito. That was a good conversation, but I'm, I'm pretty hungry. You know, that was, that was a lot of, a lot of thinking in my head, but yeah, I, I learned a lot. Yeah, I agree. Let, let's take a break here. Um, and, and come back with the rest of this discussion next week and just Again, thank you so much, Dr. West, for, for being a part of this. Yeah, my one recommendation, I'm going to get some Chipotle. Chipotle, great burritos, great food, sponsorship. Please, Chipotle, hear this out. We need some sponsorship. And I'm a big fan of the burrito bowl, so uh, for the lower carb option. Uh, See, I, I like the carbs. <laughs> I do the carbs. All right, listeners. Well, until next time, while while Vivek and I duke out our preferences at Chipotle, uh, we'll let you guys go. Until next time, we'll see you later. See you later. Peace. Peace.